continue worshiping together today, I'll be reading our first scripture lesson from Eugene Peterson's The Message. Receive this reading from 1 Thessalonians, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. I, Paul, together here with Silas and Timothy, send greetings to the church at Thessalonica. Christians assembled by God the Father and by the Master, Jesus God's amazing grace be with you, God's robust peace. Every time we think of you, we thank God for you. Day and night you're in our prayers as we call work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in following our Master, Jesus Christ, before God our Father. It is clear to us, friends, that God not only loves you very much, but also has put his hand on you for something special. When the message we preached came to you, it wasn't just words. Something happened in you. The Spirit put steel in your convictions. You paid careful attention to the way we lived among you and determined to live that way yourselves. In imitating us, you imitate Although great trouble accompanied the word, you were able to take great joy from the Holy Spirit, taking the trouble with the joy, the joy with the trouble. You know that all over the provinces of both Macedonia and Achaia, Believers look up to you. The word has gotten around. Your lives are echoing the Master's word, not only but all over the place. The news of your faith in God is out. We don't even have to say anything anymore. You are the message. People come up and tell us how you received us how you deserted the dead idols of your old life so you could embrace and serve God, the true God. They marvel at how expectantly you await the his son, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescued us from certain doom. Now please rise as you are able and receive this reading According to Matthew, chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with Herodotus, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one for you do not regard people with partiality. Then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrite? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this, and whose title? They answered, The emperor. 
Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Settle us in, O God, in the power of your spirit, the strength of your grace, the tenderness of your love, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you. For you, O God, are our strength, our rock, our redeemer. We've heard read just moments ago so well by Anne. I want to repeat these words that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. We preached, came to you, it wasn't just words. Something happened in you. You paid careful attention to the way we lived among you, and you determined that way yourselves. In imitating us, you imitated the master. And then Paul goes on to say, the word has gotten around. The news of your faith is out. We don't even have to say anything anymore. You are the message. You, you are the message. This makes me think of attributed to St. Francis. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Our living, our choosing others, the way we respond to difficulties, all of this communicates something about where we put our focus and our faith about what guides our lives, about who we're trying to imitate, who do we look up to, who are we trying to model our lives after, what our lives look like, tell others something about that. You may have heard it said, may be the only gospel that some people will ever read. Our actions speak louder than words. And our actions overrule our words if In our gospel for today, Jesus knows that the words and actions of those who question him don't match. He doesn't hesitate to call them hypocrites. Their outward does not match their inner intent. The two groups who come to question Jesus are, as one scholar says, an unlikely pairing of partisans. The Pharisees and the two groups within Judaism who had different ideas and engagement with supporting or resisting the Roman Empire. These two groups, I want you just to think about it, these two groups were not people who normally Together. These two groups coming together to work on something would be like the Democrats and the Republicans deciding they were really going to get together and get something done. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. 
to Jesus with a perennially good topic if you really want to debate, taxes. <laughs> the question they posed to Jesus is really about the poll tax, the head tax, which was the census tax, those directly into the emperor's coffers. But while these two groups likely did not agree about the tax, they agreed that they could use this topic and this question to trap Jesus in his words. If Jesus says yes, that the taxes should be paid, then he could be perceived as justifying Roman occupation and oppression. That would not go over well with the Jewish public. If Jesus said no taxes, he could be suspected of stirring up revolution and he would put himself and anyone who was following him in harm's way, getting them in trouble with Rome. It's a, it's a trick question. And whenever I think about trick questions, I always think of that classic scene in the movie My Cousin Vinny. When Vinny's fiance, do you know this movie? I'm getting some head nods. If you don't, well, I think it's hilarious. Um, my cousin Vinny. So Vinny's fiance, Miss Mona Lisa Vito, is called to the stand as an expert in general automotive knowledge. The prosecuting attorney credit Miss Vito as a witness, uh, thinking he knows it all, and he proceeds to ask her a question that really can't be answered. Now, of course, Mona Lisa Vito already and immediately knows it's a trick question. The judge asks her to explain why it's a trick question. She is more than equipped to prove her expertise. Now, some at the last service wanted me to do the Mona Lisa Vito monologue right here. I was almost prepared, and then I decided to be way too distracting. So, um, but the thing is, is she knew her stuff. She sits the prosecutor down uh, summarily. And I can imagine the same kind of dynamic between Jesus and his questioners. They thought they had him. They did not know who they were dealing with. Jesus deftly avoids the trap, the trick question, all blessed ambiguity. Another way to say it, Jesus gives a trick answer to a trick question. He is unwilling to play into the yes-no framework, and as a result, his response is open and it has been interpreted in a number of ways. For example, it's been interpreted as a legitimation of taxation. It's been interpreted as a clear division of church and state. It's been interpreted as anti-tax activism. You can pretty much interpret that thing any way you want, which I think is kind of the point, you see, because the fact of the matter is that Jesus' reply throws responsibility right back on the shoulders of those asking the question. Jesus' trick answer plays with the word head, literally from the Greek, ados, or image. And he looks at it and he says, whose ados is this? He doesn't ask because he doesn't know. I believe he asks because he is drawing attention to the ADOS as the 
to his response. I can imagine the unexpressed question Jesus is pointing to. The image on the coin, but whose image is on Caesar? And I can imagine Jesus looking at his fellow Jews, the ones who came to entrap him, them friends. Whose image is on you? Are you reflecting that image right now? Remember who you are, whose you are. If you're gonna give something To Caesar and to God, who are you going to give yourself to? Who do you belong to? Whose are you? A Christian faith is that all people are created by God and bear the image of God. Another core tenet is the call to worship God alone, to put away idols, golden calves, golden coins, and would seek to draw our attention away from the one who truly gives us life. Jesus doesn't tell us how to spend our money in this instance or whether or not to resist empire by withholding our taxes. He just points us toward the deeper reality that undergirds all our decisions about what we value and where we look to find life and security and joy. Now, maybe this frustrates you because you would prefer, honestly, that Jesus would just answer the question. Here to us as frustrating ambiguity is offered to us as an invitation to deeper faith. Because what Jesus wants us to follow him, and Jesus trusts us to follow him, to imitate him, to remember the loving creator of all things whose image we bear, and to remember who we are and whose we are, and then to make loving decisions about our stewardship, what we do with our stuff in light of that. All of this is not to say that Jesus never made direct statements about questions. On the contrary, Jesus discussed money frequently. One scholar has pointed out that in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one out of every six verses deals How about that? Do you find that weird? I mean, a lot of people say, we don't like to talk about money in church. So I say, well, have you opened your Bible? And 29 parables that told of, of the 29, 16 deal with a person and their wealth. Perhaps Jesus didn't shy away from talking about money and possessions because he had proper perspective. When Jesus tempted the wilderness was offered all the kingdoms of the world and all of their riches, what did he say? Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God, and serve only him. In other words, Jesus was able to 
perspective on power and wealth. He practiced what he preached. What did he preach? You cannot serve both God and money. He didn't tell us exactly how to do it, but he said, this, these are the values. This is what undergirds all your decisions. Remember who, who you are and then decide. Jesus desired God, depended upon God, knew that whatever happened to him, his ultimate security was in God and in the coinage or the economy of empire. This kind of deep faith and trust in God grounded Jesus. It kept him from being distracted from his purpose, from being who he was called to. And that was to proclaim and manifest the kingdom of God in word and in deed. And here's the thing. You and I are called to follow imitate Jesus, to let Christ's word dwell in us and take shape in us, in our lives, so that others might see in us the kingdom manifest in the world so big. How can I do that? I'm not Jesus. Well, guess what? Together, we are the body of Christ in this world. And we are given grace upon grace to do what we can do. Our lives are made to be the gospel that others might actually read. A lot of people don't open their Bibles anymore, but they know you. Years ago, I did a Bible study with a former church's finance committee, Matthew, that is our text today. When I got home from that meeting, I received an email from a member of the committee who happened to be an economist by vocation. And he wrote this to me, and I'm quoting him. Whenever I hear that passage, the things that are the emperors, and to God, the things that are God's, I'm reminded that money is simply a piece of paper, actually much less, in most cases. It has value because of a government decree, and ultimately, we simply believe it has value. What is most important, he wrote, is God. Whenever I worry about money, I remind myself of that fact and am reassured. He had conversation, because I was intrigued, um, and he later shared with me an essay that he had written that grappled with these questions. What exactly is money? Some of you might have a definition. What is money? And why do people value it as much as they do? And then he asked this question, which I've never forgotten. He said this, what would happen if we believed in God the way we believe in money? When we go into the store, he wrote, any doubt that these pieces of paper and plastic cards will give us what we want, despite the fact that we can't see or hear or touch or taste or smell most of what we call money. It's all just kind of out there. <laughs> Imagine if we had faith in God like that. Imagine if we truly meant it when we said, in God we trust. God entrusts to us stewardship of all the gifts that we've been given, which include our very lives, the lives of others, 
whole planet, the church, and everything that we call ours. God entrusts it all to us to care for and to help it flourish in us. Trusts. It's really quite extraordinary. In us, God trusts. How are we doing with that? A role to play in mending the world, in renewing our congregation, in caring for the people in our lives and in our communities. Jesus' questions was often to reframe the question in its larger context of God's presence, love, and transforming power, and then to lob the question back to whomever was coming at him. And today, the question has been lobbed back to us. And I would invite us to ponder some of its implications. When you take an honest look at your life, in what or in whom do you really put your trust? If you were to truly give to God the things that are God's, what would that look like in your life? What is the specific offered to you this morning that, if accepted, will help you become more like Christ, more fully the very best of yourself? These aren't trick questions, <laughs> but they're not no-brainers either. By God's grace, perhaps our answers will justify God's trust in us. By God's grace, perhaps faithful stewardship of all we've been given will reunite and renew us as Foundry Church. By God's grace, perhaps our imitation of Christ will lead others to say of us, you are the message. May it be so. Amen. Amen.